Thessalonians. You'll notice that we are in part three of our first Thessalonians series. And you will be hard-pressed to find a more emotional passage from Paul in the entire scripture other than this one. I don't ever think of Paul necessarily as being an emotionally passionate guy. I always see Paul as a driven man, a tough man, a strong man, not necessarily in physical strength, but obviously in the things that he did, the abuse that he took. I don't think of him as being necessarily mushy, but what you're going to see is he's going to lace through this whole passage one emotionally loaded word after another. And for a lot of us, we're going to read into this and say, well, the guy's just kind of going extreme, going over the top, just so he can make them feel better because they felt abandoned by him. So he's just kind of faking it. I don't believe that to be the case. He does love them. That is clear. However, one of the things we need to remember is that their world is not like our world. They were under intense persecution. It was not about go to church and play church. It was not about just, oh, I kind of know that pastor, never really met that guy. It's a completely different scenario. In that day, it was the, I probably led you to the Lord. I'm intimately connected to making sure you spiritually grow. And you're being attacked by false teachers and the authorities on all fronts. I'm nervous about you. I want you to thrive. I don't even know if you're still alive. And so the emotion level is heightened. So it is not fake. It's all legitimate. So let's go ahead and grab, now that we have the Bibles, if you need a Bible this morning, raise your hand. We'll bring a Bible to you. Uh, because I want you to be able to see the words that I'm referring to. I want you to be able to track when you get home. Uh, like, for example, my wife... She reads the word every morning, right? Uh, and she's began to track through the Thessalonians series. She went through and read 1 Thessalonians a number of times, started going into the 2 Thessalonians to really try to dig out and say, what can I find for myself? One of the reasons we make the Bibles come to you and we make you bring them to church is that you don't have a pastor at home, but you do have a Bible at home. And so if you get used to finding it and reading through it together, you'll be able to do that on your own. That's really the goal. Our goal is to try to equip you that you have everything you need away from this place, not just here. All right. Now, as we get into this series, I entitled it Sibling Unity today. And we're going to talk about growing together into maturity. So let me begin with a concept. The concept is what does it mean to be spiritually mature? I think that for most of us, if we're honest, we have no idea. We seem to be running towards a goal that is very ethereal. A goal that is very shadowy. Well, we don't quite know what we're supposed to become. We know we're supposed to spiritually grow. That much is clear. But into what? What does it look like to have a spiritually mature Christian? Usually, you'll pick out somebody that's older than you and seems to be a bit more serious and seems to be into Jesus and they don't do the bad stuff you do. And then we grab them and we go, oh, I need to become like that. Is that what spiritually mature means? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It does not mean sinless. The only person in a human body 
that ever walked this earth that will ever be sinless is Jesus Christ. It will not be you. And God does not expect you to be sinless. He created you. He's very realistic in understanding what he made. When we fell in the garden, sin entered into the world and we became distorted and we are broken to the core. So no matter how many times we try to right the ship, we will continue to steer slightly off course. So I'm not going to be talking about being sinless, but I will tell you this, you're going to look a lot more healthy and whole as you grow mature than you are right now. So what I did is I thought off the top of my head, what does this look like practically? Instead of talking in general concepts, what specifically can we look for in our lives? So I came up with seven marks of maturity that I want to throw out to you just as we begin. If you take notes, you might want to write these down, see where you're at in this assessment. Seven marks. Now, these are merely samplings. What a true spiritually mature believer looks like, I don't even know. I would have to sit down and do much more examination to come up with a much more exhaustive list. This is only a sampling, and it's in no particular order. But let's kind of dive into this, see where we're at. All right, number one, mark of maturity. Strong faith. Strong faith. What what do I mean? I mean a minimized amount of doubt. Faith, by definition, means that you don't know fully yet. That's why it's faith. However, that implies a slight a bit of possibility of doubt. But if we're going to talk about spiritually mature, what we cannot do is have extraordinary doubt. We cannot have a double-minded life where sometimes we're all in, sometimes we're all out. Where we just go, I don't know about this whole God thing. One time you're worshiping really intensely. Two weeks later, you're not even sure God exists. Spiritually mature means that those undulations of change begin to minimize. And then you don't, you still have some doubts. You may have doubts about, well, what does God desire for me here? But you do not have the great serious doubts of, I don't even think Christianity is legit. So one of the marks of spiritual maturity is a strong faith, a strong belief, a locked in adherence and trust of Christ. Number two. A surrendered life. What does a surrendered life mean? What I mean by it is that you're living by godly priorities. Living by godly priorities. You may not do everything right, but you know what's important to God in general order. You are no longer living with this haphazard, I just kind of do the things that I want to do. But you have some sense that God says, I'm most important. God is most important in our lives and begins to trickle down from there. Do you live with godly priorities? You may still be rebellious. You may still have sin issues. You may have a whole bunch of things going on in your life. But do you know and organize your life based on what's important to God? Number three, consistent obedience Consistent obedience. I mean, you stop the backsliding drama. What does that mean? Backsliding drama. Stopping the extreme, outward, damaging sin. Though we will not be sinless, we can reduce 
damage to other people. We can stop these whole periods where we walk away from the faith, wander in the world, get totally muddy, get cleaned up by God, come back. Then we're in the faith for two years. Then we do another foray into the world where we go walking around for a couple years, damage a bunch of people, hurt our soul, and then come back to the faith. That is a mark of immaturity. Consistent obedience means that you are tracking with your Lord with some consistency over long periods of time. And I know that for some of us, we say, well, I'm never going to be rid of this one sin. It's a super big one, and all I do is habitually do this one. Although you will not be sinless, I do believe that that can be eradicated. You go, what do you mean? I mean, we can move on to another one to work on, right? Because here's the truth of the matter. We are so focused on the sins. Like if I said right now, what's blocking between you and God? Go. You'd have an immediate reaction to certain sins. The problem is, if you're so focused on those, you don't even see everything underneath it. If those were eradicated, you would then have clarity to go, oh my gosh, I'm very selfish. I'm prideful. I'm, and you begin to see the next layer. The problem is we don't ever get to the next layer. We're so focused on the overt big ones, and we think, I'm never going to get over those. I'm going to have to work on them my whole life, so what's the point? There's no point in mastering that. There's no point in getting past that. It's just my burden to carry. I have fallen into that trap myself. We pick up number four, fourth mark of maturity, connection with God. What do I mean? I mean through prayer and the Word. Are you engaging with your Lord on a 24-7, 365 basis. Do you have access to your God? Do you communicate with your Lord? Are you building a relationship with the Creator? And what I mean is, although not everything is going as you want it, when you do spend time in prayer, you don't have to go back and lay a whole foundation of awkwardness. You know what I mean? Now, there's some of us who... When we go to prayer, let's say I said, everyone go home today and spend 15 minutes in prayer. For some of you, you're going to have to start like this. God, I feel totally awkward. I haven't talked to you in about two weeks. I know, first of all, I'm sorry. I don't, you know, I don't even know what I'm sorry about. I'm sorry about a whole bunch of stuff. This is really weird for me just to even come back to you because now I feel like there's all this estrangement and awkwardness. So let's just start over. Can we start over? Some of us have to start like that. Others of us can walk right into it and say, Father, you know my heart. We've been talking all week. I am so messed up. But you know what? Today I was challenged by Pastor Lance to go engage with you in a fresh way. I just want to tell you, I may not know what I'm doing, but wow, it's, it's nice to be with you. Do you understand the difference? Okay, a mark of maturity is we have a constant stream as opposed to big blocks of absence. All right, we pick up the next one. Number five, fifth mark of maturity, a grasp on the word of God, a grasp, a good, strong hold on the Bible. It means you're able to understand it and instruct from it, understand it and instruct from it. You're like, what are you talking about? I'm not going up there. No, 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 not a public speaking thing. When someone comes to you and asks you a question about life, 
Hey, so what's your stance on, you know, like I got asked the other day, this was a brilliant question, in my opinion. It'll sound odd to you and kind of funny to you. I take it seriously. They said, can I, as a Christian, open up a medicinal marijuana store? I was like, that's a brilliant question. Because if your immediate reaction is, no, that's stupid. Why? You give me biblical basis. Why? Do you have any idea why you said that? Do you have any idea about what's going on? What you think pot's wrong because what? You don't even know what you're talking about. You don't even know where it came from in the Bible. You're taking on what everyone else told you. What I had to do was systematically go through scripture and begin to instruct through scripture what I believe God was saying about that specific topic. Then, taking it from the level of what's biblical and taking it from the level of what's right and wrong and shift into a level of wisdom. All right, let's say these things are allowable in Scripture, these things are not. Let's say you can somehow work it into a completely medical concept. What is the wisdom of that decision? Is that a battle you want to fight? Is that the expectation you want placed on you in reputation? We would, so I went through systematically. I'm not saying you have to do it to that degree. What I'm saying is, if anyone asks you a question, does your answer flow from something in the Bible? Because you know it to some degree. Otherwise, all you have is opinion. And that's not helpful. All right, let's pick up the next one. Number six. Sixth mark of maturity. A servant identity. Servant identity. That means that you finally realize that you are here for others and not yourself. A mark of immaturity or childlikeness is that the world revolves around you. Um, If you've ever studied child development, there's a big threshold that a child crosses into maturity when they begin to realize that their decisions have an impact on the world around them. Nothing is different in spirituality. When you finally wake up and say, what I do impacts others, and I'm actually here, designed and planted on earth for God and other people, there's a level of maturity that has arrived. All right? Last one. Number seven, seventh mark of maturity. Extraordinary love. Extraordinary love, the lifeblood of Christianity. It means that you have a full heart for the Lord and his creation. That you are not constantly walking around speaking bitterness and hatred towards other people. That you are not constantly locked into racism, sexism, throwing people into categories and casting dispersions on their name. Loaded with gossip. The malice is not there that though you may not do everything right and you may accidentally trip over and completely hurt people or you may react out of anger sometimes they are less the rule and more the exception. Extraordinary love is at the hallmark of who you are in your character for that is a mark of maturity. All right. So those are seven samplings um, of what it may look like to be mature. So where are you at? And do you have any plan by which to arrive there? Do you have any idea on how you're going to become more mature? That is obviously what we're trying to do here in this church. 
We're trying to do the classes. We're trying to do the teach from the word. We're trying to raise the children um, in God. We're doing all these things that we might mature everybody. Because maturity is not only possible. It is commanded in the word of God. All right, last concept and then we'll dive into 1 Thessalonians. Last concept. Who's helping you do that and who are you helping? There we go. Some of God's greatest catalysts are sitting around you. Friends, go back through your mind. Where have you ever spiritually grown? Almost always it comes through a person. It may go through suffering. It may go through an experience. But in general, someone shared something with you that allowed you to do a quantum leap in your growth. It may have been a buddy who was sitting there one time and just happened to comment on what they saw in your life. And they said, dude, you keep saying you're a Christian. You are the lousiest Christian I've ever seen. You're like, oh, what? Right? You can't say that to me. Or it's a girlfriend talking to a girlfriend and, and she looks in and says, every time you say those things, it hurts me. And you have to re-rack. Wait, wait, what am I doing to hurt you? What are we talking about? You need friends. That's what we're talking about. Now, do you think you're too old for friends, right? Because you've been focusing on your family, right? Working with the kids for a lot of us. And so you put the whole friendship thing out and you're just cool. You can walk it independent. It's just you and God. All you need is your Bible. No, you're foolish. Stop doing that. You need friends. You need other people around you to speak into your life, to be catalysts for growth. Because a lot of times, if God has something to say... His voice is going to sound a lot like your closest friend. All right, let's pick up the word. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Uh, I forgot again to write down the page number in the Blue Bible. What, what is that? 536? 586? 836. Someone's going to get a bingo at some point. That was excellent, yes. Yeah, exactly. That's right. That's right. <laughs> sorry about that. All right. You can turn to all those. I'm sure they're good. All right. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is simply this. Who are you currently helping to grow spiritually? Who are you currently helping to grow spiritually? For we're going to see that that is the lifeblood of Paul. Let me give you some background, because every time we engage in this, I always forget what happened. So these are real guys. This is a real story. This is a historical incident. And this is kind of how it went down. Uh, Paul and Silas, uh, two solid big dogs of Christianity, traveled from what we now know as modern-day Turkey across the waters to modern-day Greece. They started in one city named Philippi, and they traveled down into a city by the name of Thessalonica. In Thessalonica, they walked in and had a wonderfully fantastic ministry where they planted a baby church. A lot of people got saved. They were all excited, but they were all newbies in the faith. Persecution hit, a riot broke out, and Paul and Silas had to leave very suddenly. And it was a very heart-tearing situation for them. They did not want to leave, but they were chased out. And they went down to a city by the name of Berea. They met Timothy, their third guy in that city. The same crew that chased them out of Thessalonica followed them, chased them out of Berea. 
Paul said, listen, you guys, I'm the poster child. I'm on the wanted poster. I'll bail out. You guys are under the radar. Stay here. What I want you to do is minister to them a little bit here in Berea, but then I need you to go back when you're free and go find out how our baby churches in Philippi and Thessalonica are because it stresses me out that we had to leave so fast. So Paul continues on, Timothy and Silas, wait, then go on their missions. Are we cool with that? All right. Then Paul went on to Athens and it's likely there. That Silas comes back with his report on the first city of Philippi. Then Paul and Silas are doing ministry there, completely stressing about Thessalonica. They haven't heard anything. Timothy's not back yet. Are they still solid? Did the bad guys come in and ruin everything? You know, you remember the uh, parable of the soils. You remember that? Uh, the parable of the soils, Jesus told a story. He said there was a farmer and he was sowing seed and as he cast the seed, the, some seed fell on, what, the rocky path, a hard path, and the, the birds swooped down and grabbed it. He was referring later to say, that's like Satan. That if it's hard ground that you end up sharing the gospel with somebody whose heart is completely hard, and God has not tilled that soil, and they do not want to hear, then Satan can easily snatch it away from them. Some of it fell on shallow ground, you remember that? And in the shallow ground, it sprung up quickly, but it didn't have any root. So it got burned out by the sun. Some fell on a place where thorns, even though it was beginning to grow and doing pretty good, the thorns choked it out and killed it. And then some fell on good soil. And when the seed fell on good soil, it began to produce different sort of crops. All right. In the same way, Paul was afraid that because he got pulled out of that city so fast, did he not get a chance to till up the soil enough that they might grow? Did Satan bring in bad guys to sweep in, pull the seed away, and they were completely demolished? So he's stressing heavily over that, and then a knock comes on the door. Knock, knock, knock. Timothy, whoa, how you doing, man? What, what, what do you know? Paul, they're awesome. They're doing so good. They love us, man. I know that the bad guys came in. They said that we're bogus, and we used them, and we took off. They didn't believe any of that garbage. They are completely solid. I can tell you, even though we weren't there, wow, God just discipled them. They're growing up. Now, they do have a lot of stuff that they still want to know. They still need us really badly. But you know what? They're solid. Be encouraged. Paul immediately stopped, grabbed a pen, and began to write this letter back. Okay? That's where we are in the story. All right, let's go back. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17. Boy, that was a really long intro. Here we go. Let's just read a couple verses and then we'll pray. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, is it possible, Lord, for our hearts to become soft enough that we look at the spiritual lives of other people as our glory and joy? Or do we always have to be immature and focused on our own spirituality? 
God, we'll never be anything more than what you make us. Change us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So he begins, he says, but brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, that word torn away in Greek means orphaned. It's a family being ripped apart. That's how big of a deal it was to Paul. He said, we get chased out. I never get to say goodbye. I never get to give you what you need. I feel like I left you hanging. My guts were ripped out when we were forced to run away. We were torn away from you for a short time, meaning until Timothy could make his way back to you. But I want you to know we were gone from you in person, not in our hearts. Our hearts were always with you. Our thoughts were always with you. But out of our intense longing, that is a very strong word in Greek, we wanted to be with you so badly, out of that intense longing, we made every effort to see you. That word in Greek means an emotionally charged motivation to return. We tried and we tried. I brainstormed and I brainstormed to try to figure out a way to get back to you. But I couldn't. Why? Next phrase. He says, we wanted, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did. The guys writing with him are like, dude, don't say it like that. What do you mean you? I, we did too, right? Why? Because Paul was being challenged as being a guy that didn't care about him. It's very rare for him to ever mention his name again in a letter. So this is very odd. He's trying to drive home the point and say, stop buying the bad uh, press. No, no, no. I'm personally missing you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. Multiple attempts to get back, but Satan stopped us. That word stopped is a technical military word. It means to stop an advancing army by means of tearing up the roads and laying roadblocks. Does Satan do that? Okay, do you believe in spiritual warfare? Do you believe that it's real? Do you believe that there's really a Satan or are we just kind of playing a game here? Uh, Satan is very clearly real. His demonic forces are very real. And yes, they're smarter than you. And yes, they're faster than you. And they're stronger than you. Make no mistake. However, the angelic forces are here to assist us along. And bottom line is, our God is the only uncreated being and Satan and his team is not. So we win. However, there is satanic warfare. How does Paul know that Satan stopped him? You go, oh, because Paul's that way. You know, he sees a demon behind every rock. It's always Satan's fault if anything bad happens. No, that's not true. How do we know? Because you remember what got him over to Greece? It was intriguing. He'd always ministered around the Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria area. All on the Turkey side of things. How did he get over to Greece? Well, we all remember the story. It says, Paul tried to go north, but God stopped him. He tried to go east, but the Holy Spirit prevented him. He tried to go south, and God said no. Only then did he receive a vision of a man over from the Turkey side of things that said, come bring us the gospel, that he went across the water. In other words, he said, God stopped me over and over and over. So he knows the difference between God stopping him from ministry 
and Satan stopping him from ministry. How? I have no idea. I wish I knew that. That would be a lot easier. I would love to be able to counsel with absolute assurance. I don't know that. And not only that, but we don't know how he was stopped. There's no mention of it. Now, scholars seem to side on one of two sides, although I think that these are both just guesses. One is illness, that Paul was shut down by illness and he could not go because Paul's pretty tough. He handles persecution pretty well. The other option was the city officials all gathered together and blocked him from leaving and blocked him from entering into another city where no matter, it wasn't even about persecution, flat out he would be jailed if he went in. So somehow, some way, Paul knew that his heart was to minister to them. He knew that God wanted him to minister to them, but Satan blocked him. Let me ask you this. If Satan has been involved in every major division of the church, if Satan has attacked every legitimate church in history, what is he doing right now currently to tear down Bridgeway? Well, you, you think he's cool with this? Really, we're all sitting, what, thousands of us are all hanging out learning about God and praising him and worshiping him. And Satan's not going to shut that down? Are you kidding me? Of course he is. How's that going to happen? Um, he's going to try every possible avenue. Um, some of them are going to be things like trying to rot us out from the inside, where we all have disagreements. Oh, I don't like them. I don't like them. And we fight, right? Um, some of it will be attacking leadership. If I could just take down the leadership, just strike the shepherd and the sheep scatter, that kind of stuff. I, I think we need to be praying about this stuff. I don't think we want to lose what's going on. Yeah? Um, he said, Satan stopped us. And then he starts referring to who they are to him. Why it's such a big deal. He says, verse 19, for what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? You know what glory means. It's that part of you that makes you look good. It's the shiny part, right? That's kind of what glory means. What is your glory? It's interesting because it talks about man being the glory of God and woman being the glory of man. Interesting. Um, But then there's a phrase in there that you may not recognize. It says, what is our hope? We know hope. We know joy. But what is the crown? In the Bible, there are two words in Greek that are translated crown very commonly. One is diadema. The other is stephanos, where we get the words, the name Stephanie, Stephen, right? Um, The diadema is what a king wears, the big old crown. That's not this. This is the stephanos. It's a victor's wreath, the little tiny one that they would win if they won the race, right? So it's a reward-based concept. He said, what? Do we end up wearing, Jesus shows back up, begins to start talking about, well done, my good and faithful servant. What have you done with what I've given you? He begins to assess out and begin to give rewards to believers. And Paul will get an opportunity to turn around and go, look. And this whole Thessalonian church is following him. And he'll go, dad, did I do good? And the victor's wreath. He said, what do you think? makes us so happy what do you think gives us so much hope that our ministry is not in vain is it not you his whole identity of did i do well jesus is wrapped up in how many lives did i touch not what did i produce on paper is that how you assess things are people important to you 
to where you care if people thrive around you, that you focus your whole life on how do I invest and empower the people around me? Or is it still all about what you can produce? Some personalities really have a hard time with that. He said, in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes. That word, when he comes, is a one that people trip up on in the Bible. It's parousia. Uh, a lot of people argue, oh my gosh, that's the rapture. Because parousia and rapture tend to get linked together. All it means is presence. God's going to show up. Originally, the word is used to say a ruler is coming to visit a city. That's all it means. Somehow, someway, in the future, God's going to show up and Jesus is going to roll into town. And we need to be able to talk about that. As a matter of fact, in this book, Paul refers to the return of the Lord four times. Why? Why keep talking about the return of Christ? Because I would suggest to you that Paul, in some ways, believes that the return of Christ answers all the stuff that's going on. Practically. For example, let's use two different analogies. Let's say um, people are lost in sin. They're just being a bunch of punks. They're just, uh, we're really rebellious. We're doing our own thing. We're breaking away from God. We're resistant. We're hard-hearted. And we run into the world. And then I say to you, Jesus is coming back really soon. That should have an impact. Right? Because let's do it another way. Let's say you're being persecuted. You're doing everything you can for the Lord. It feels like the enemy is winning. And there's no way you're ever going to survive. What would be my response? Jesus is coming back soon. Why? Because he's going to come back and set things straight, beat up the bad guys, and take you home. Is that not an encouragement? So it's an encouragement and a fear-provoking judgment. Yeah? All depends on where you're standing. In one phrase, Jesus is coming back soon. It addresses a myriad of issues. So he refers to it a lot. Is it not you? Indeed, Paul said, you are our glory and joy. So then he returns back to his thought process about why Timothy was there in the first place. So then when we could stand it no longer, when we could emotionally not handle the stress of wondering about you guys, whether or not you were still hanging in there, we thought it best to be left by ourselves in Athens. He's saying, listen, we're a team that is very small. We need all our guys for protection, and for ministry effectiveness. Yet because we are so stressed about you, we abandon one of our guys and send him to you. That's how important we think you are. We sent Timothy, who is our brother, and what? God's fellow worker. That's a weird phrase. He's God's partner. He didn't say he's our fellow worker. He said he's God's fellow worker. One commentary pointed out and they said, scribes got so freaked out by that statement, they altered the words. They said God's servant. Because they didn't like the idea that a man would be the partner of God. And you're like, hold up, hold up. What? Are we not reading the rest of the Bible? God's doing the real ministry and we get to what? Partner with him. Of course we're God's partner. Doesn't mean we're leading the charge. Paul knew very well that what they were doing was just trying to play along with what power God was doing and change that God was making. So he calls Timothy, this young man who probably didn't have a lot of respect, that he was God's fellow worker. 
He was that important to God and to Paul. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith. The word strengthen is to shore up a building. The word encourage means to not only comfort, but stimulate you towards action. What did he do? He walked in to make sure you're solid and get you fired up and get you going the right direction in your faith. What does it mean in your faith? He uses that five times in one chapter. Five times in chapter three. Faith, 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 faith. What does it mean? It means your walk with God. Where are you at in your walk with God? Where are you at in your trust and adherence to who the Lord is, your Christianity? He said he came to build you up in your walk with God. Why? Verse 3. So that no one would be unsettled by these trials. Meaning you guys are getting hit from all different sides. I don't want you getting unsettled. The word unsettled is weird. Unsettled in Greek means the wagging of a dog's tail. Okay, quick side note about Bible stuff. You know, some of us freak out and we go, why does this Bible say this? And this Bible says this. Oh, everything's chaotic. No, when you're talking about another language, we all know that languages have multiple meanings. If I use the word love, what do I mean? Do I mean, oh, I love that movie? Or do I mean, I love you? Those are two different things. So whenever translators are working on a Bible translation, they have to side on one side or the other. Different words have different meanings, multiple meanings. So this one has two dramatically different meanings. One, the wagging of a dog's tail, which is a, what, a uh, wordplay uh, metaphor. The wagging of dog's tail can mean going back and forth, vacillating between two different opinions, Right? probably the most likely here. Um, is that what he means? That you wouldn't be thrown back and forth by these trials, becoming unstable. The other word, the other phrase that people attach to it is that a dog wags his tail when he's all excited and he's fawning over you. The idea is, oh, I'm so excited. And it's this idea of getting somebody through flattery where they would kind of get them to be unstable. And those commentators began to talk about the fact of how Satan began to tempt Eve in the, in the garden. Do you remember? How, did he, how does he start out? He always starts out with two different things. One, he always starts out with doubt. Two, he'll start out with flattery. He'll do things like, oh, lady, wow, you look pretty sharp. You're pretty intelligent. So here's the deal. I think God's holding out on you. I just want to be straight with you. And I'm just saying that there's this fruit, right? Why would you make the fruit if you can't touch it? I think you're a big enough girl to handle it on your own, right? I mean, you can make the decision. Does it look good? Does it taste good? What are we doing? And he begins to flatter her and she begins to fall. All right. Does that make sense? So one of these two terms applies here. But he was so afraid that they would be unsettled by these trials. And then he says, but you know quite well you were destined for them. You're a Christian. Of course it's hard. You know what I mean? I mean, what are we talking about? Didn't I promise you persecution? Didn't I promise you trouble? You know, when people come up and I'll go, hey, you walk with the Lord? I don't know. Well, it's up. I don't know. It's just so hard. I just, I gave up. Of course it's hard. What are you talking about? What did you think you were walking into? And then people, they end up uh, separating in their marriage. Why are you separating? That's uh, too hard. Right? What else? Of course it's hard. What are you talking about? Yes. Having kids is hard too. Everything that's valuable is difficult. 
All right, so what? What are we talking about? Why are we unsettled by this? Why is this a shock? He said, wait a second. You know quite well you were destined for them. In fact, verse 4, when we were with you, we kept telling you we would be persecuted. And it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, meaning back when I was stressing over you, when I could stand it no longer emotionally, I sent to find out about your faith. I sent Timothy to check up on you. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. Tempter is who? Satan. Tempter. Garden of Eden. When Jesus was in the desert. Remember? For 40 days, 40 nights, the tempter came. And he said, if you are the son of God. And you are, right? Right? All right. We'll make these stones bread. You're hungry, right? Remember the doubt? And the tempting, the flattery? He'd do it the same way every time. Here's what I found interesting as I was just breezing through that. Isn't it wild that Satan tempted in the garden of prosperity and blessing and in the desert of waste and nothingness? And he uses the same exact tactics on both sides. I thought that was bizarre. Meaning no matter where you're at in your life, if you are on top of the world with everything you possibly want, he can take you down. When you are in a desert going, I hate everything, Satan will show up. Ding. And he'll keep firing at you no matter where you're at. Paul knew that if they go down, he's crushed. Do you feel that way about anybody else? Do you care about anybody else's spirituality but your own? Or is it, okay, only your kids? Only your spouse? Got anybody else? See, here's what happens normally in a church. We know each other somewhat. And if we find out someone else isn't walking in the faith, it becomes a phone call. Oh my gosh, Marge, did you hear about this? Veronica, right? She's not walking with the Lord anymore. Why? I don't know. She's got this new guy. Well, the new guy, what do you mean? Well, she's not going to church, I'll tell you that. Well, how do you know? I never see her there. And you know what? I actually talked to her the other day and she talked about the fact that she's done with that whole thing because her new guy, he's not into that sort of thing. Oh my gosh, that's terrible, isn't it? How useful is that? If you're not part of the solution to leading them back or you're not part of a warning system to say they're going to take you down too, shut your mouth. Yeah? Pretty straightforward. All right. What we do is we don't really care. It's just interesting. So we share it. Okay, when do we care? When do we care that if somebody else goes down in this church, it's a problem? And we lost one. When do we get all fired up to go get them again? We need to care about other people's spirituality. Pick it up at verse 6. But Timothy has just now come to us from you, and he brought us good news. Good news about your faith and about your love. He told us that you always have pleasant memories of us and that you long to see us just as we long to see you. In other words, you didn't buy any of that garbage, any of that bad PR, none of the lies that were spread about us. You still totally love us. Therefore, brothers, in all our distress, that word means intense pressure where you're unable to move. In all our distress and in all our persecution, that's direct harm from an enemy. We were encouraged about you because of your faith. For now we really live 
since you're standing firm in the Lord. What do you mean? I mean that when you know that someone you love is under duress, you can't have a lightness of heart. Yeah? You're troubled. You can't be freed up to enjoy certain scenarios when someone you love is suffering. But now that he knows that they're all right, that they're growing, that they're thriving in their spiritual walk, he doesn't have that heaviness. He can throw that off and begin to really now enjoy what God is doing in his life. And it all wraps up on how they're standing firm in the Lord. How can we thank God enough for you in return for all the joy that we have in the presence of God because of you? Night and day, meaning consistently a lot, we pray most earnestly. That means really extreme emotionally with passion. We pray most earnestly that we may see you physically again and supply what is lacking in your faith. What's lacking in their faith? Are they doing something wrong? No, they're babies. And babies lack certain things to operate in this world. It's just natural. So he said, I wish I was there and we got to get more stuff to you so you can grow up. He said, now may our God and father himself and our Lord Jesus clear the way for us to come to you. Why does God have to clear the way? Because Satan's setting up roadblocks and they can't get past them by themselves. May the Lord make your love increase. And overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as our does, ours does for you. What's a mark of maturity? Growing in love, where you care about other people and not just yourself. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless, not sinless, blameless. You're not doing the overt things everybody's telling you that you're doing. So that you will be blameless and holy, mature in your faith, solid and sanctified in Christ Jesus. In the presence of our God and Father, when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Um, Jesus is going to return with his holy ones. Who are the holy ones? Just, just side note. You got two options. Right? Dead Christians. Or Angels. And you go, well, all right, why, why are those my options? Because Paul, that's his favorite term for Christians, holy ones. And you go, so it's holy ones. Let's move on. He's quoting Zechariah, and in Zechariah, it's angels. <laughs> Darn it. Dead Christians, angels. Does anybody care? Nope, let's end. All right, so <laughs> Jesus is going to show back up, and that's important, right? So I finish with these two challenges. Number one, are you mature in the Lord? Number two, who are you helping grow spiritually? These are things that must ring in our hearts.